Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Good morning, everybody. The sermon text for today is Philippians 1, verses 12 through most of 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has served, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we bless you this morning. You are our rock and our salvation. God, there is nothing in this life that compares to you. You are our hope and our joy, and our confidence. God, be with us this morning as we worship. Fill us with your spirit and make us alive evermore with the desire to honor you with our lives and to proclaim your salvation to all who will hear. To the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. All right, good morning. How's everybody good today? Yeah? I will be honest, I am exhausted. <laughs> uh, my grandma passed away on Wednesday. She was awesome, lived a really long time and loved Jesus. So kind of a blessing, but me and the family did a marathon drive yesterday, 10 hours of driving to be there for two and a half hours and perform the funeral. So uh, if I pass out mid-sermon, don't panic. I will wake up. I will keep going. I won't be out long. So... Uh, great to be here with you as we continue in the book of Philippians. Last week, we talked about this idea of gospel partnership. We saw that partnership and fellowship are the same word in Greek, koinonia. And we realized that this idea of fellowship in the first century was far more involved than coffee and donuts before church. That it involved mutual sacrifice focused on a common vision. True fellowship in the gospel calls together a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, every age and socioeconomic bracket for the purpose of God's plan of redemption in the world through Jesus Christ. This is what we have been called to as the body of Christ, to follow Jesus in laying our lives down so that the glory of God and salvation might spread to the ends of the earth. 
and the context of our calling, what Scripture says is an inevitable part of the life of faith in Christ is suffering. It's struggle. When we proclaim Jesus Christ, when we follow him in laying our lives down for others, when we sacrifice our little kingdoms to see his eternal kingdom grow, when we proclaim there is salvation nowhere else, it will come at a cost. There will be discomfort, hardship, even opposition at times that are the result of our faithfulness. And I know that there are plenty of pastors out there that will tell you that if you just have enough faith, you will not suffer. You won't be hungry. You're not going to struggle financially. But those jokers are what Scripture calls false teachers because they're teaching the very opposite of what Jesus told us. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So the question I want to look at this morning is not, will we suffer? But rather, why do we suffer? And what does it mean to suffer for the gospel? And in order to answer these questions, we have to deal with one of the most difficult paradoxes in Scripture. If you've studied the Bible much, you know that from Genesis to Revelation, there is this theme woven throughout Scripture that says that God is both sovereign and good. Yet, if we look at those same Scriptures, there is this theme of suffering. And it's not an optional suffering. It's promised that as Christians, we will suffer in this life. As I just read, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. And then in John 15, he said, if, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. So suffering is promised. But we also know that God is both sovereign and he's good. That is, nothing happens apart from his will, and he is working everything together for good. So we have to wrestle with this reality that God is both sovereign and good, and at the same time, he is a God who ordains suffering. And suffering for the cause of Christ exists in virtually every single New Testament book in the Bible. The only one where we don't see suffering is 1 Timothy, but Paul talks about it so much in 2 Timothy that it pretty much counts. So when we come to this text this morning where Paul's talking about joy and contentment, even inside of suffering, we have to deal with this paradox that God is sovereign and he is good and we will suffer. If you're not a Christian, you're going to suffer because we live in a broken and sinful world. And if you are a Christian, you're going to sin because we live in a broken and sinful world. Plus, you're going to suffer for the cause of Christ, for righteousness' sake, as Jesus said in the Beatitudes. This is promised to us. So I want to ask this morning, how are you suffering? Are you experiencing pain? financial struggle? 
Are there relational strains going on in your life? Or maybe more important, are you suffering well? How do you live inside this paradox of God being both sovereign and good while dealing with the reality of suffering? How do you fight for joy in what seems like the most difficult of times? In verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, right? He's in prison. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. See, Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was one of the most influential leaders in all of Christianity, and he lived a life of remarkable suffering. So you may look at me and say, Pastor, you have no right to talk to me about suffering. And you may be right, but Paul does. And when you look at Paul's life from an outward view, it was a mess. It was not something that we look at and covet. And he gives us kind of the cliff notes of his suffering in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. And this is like the partial list, but it drives home the point. Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's a lot. And then on top of that, we read in 2 Corinthians 12 that through all of this physical suffering, Paul also had this thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was, but Paul says three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. So Paul knew suffering. He had experienced pain and struggle and hardship, not in spite of his ministry, but as a direct result of his faithfulness to the call of God on his life. And he had this physical ailment that he was having to deal with through all of that faithfulness. And even as he writes this letter, he's in Roman imprisonment awaiting his fate. And so what's so interesting about this paradox we spoke about is that when we look at the extent of Paul's suffering the extent that he endured, we have to realize that much of what we know about God's sovereignty and his goodness came from the mouth of Paul, right? So Paul was both the prime sufferer and the prime expounder of the sovereignty and goodness of God. Which leads us to ask, how does Paul have hope and joy in the midst of a life of pain and suffering and struggle? Well, look back at verse 12. He tells the Philippians, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. 
What he's saying is that his suffering has a purpose. The purpose was to advance the gospel, to spread the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, to proclaim God's rescue plan for his people. You see, Paul was not a sadist. He didn't love suffering, right? He pleaded with God to remove this thorn. But Paul's love for Jesus and his love for the gospel was so much greater. It was more important to him than his own life. It was more important to him than his own comfort. And Paul goes on in verse verse 13 to tell us exactly how his suffering has advanced the gospel. He says this suffering has served to advance the gospel, so it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So what Paul is saying is that through his suffering, the gospel has been proclaimed to those who didn't know it to the imperial guard. And it has strengthened those who do know it, the brothers. And it wasn't just the fact that Paul suffered that encouraged others. It was how he suffered. See, there's no way that Paul could have spoken to every one of the 9,000 imperial guard. But his message was so compelling. His hope was so firm in Christ. The way that he lived was so different than the other prisoners they had that the word about him spread. And the whole imperial guard came to know that this man is in chains for Jesus. It wasn't like Paul wanted to be in prison. He was a missionary He wanted to be on the mission field, planting and encouraging churches. But he knew that wherever God had him at that moment, his his calling was to tell the story of redemption through Jesus. And Paul is not unique in his suffering. If you look throughout Scripture, we see a, a pattern of people who have suffered for the advancement of the gospel. In Genesis, we meet a guy named Joseph. We all know him. He was the favorite of 12 sons. He had a bunch of jealous brothers, right? So what do you do if you're jealous? You throw someone in a pit, right? Of course. That's what we do. But through the sovereign working of God over the years of suffering in prison, Joseph went from nothing to being given power over all of Egypt. And when he finally runs into his brothers, once again through the sovereign working of God, they think Joseph's going to kill him. And maybe he should have. But this is what he says. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And what is it that God meant for good? Being beaten, being thrown in a pit, being sold into slavery by his own brothers, and spending years in prison. God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
See, God took their sin and their hatred and brought redemption and salvation through Joseph's suffering. And then we have the prophet Jeremiah, right? When God calls Jeremiah, he's like, bro, get ready. Like, gird up your loins. They will fight against you. That's what it's going to be like to be my prophet. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you. And his life looked a lot like Paul's. He just cried and complained more, right? He was betrayed by his relatives, beaten, imprisoned, accused of treason. He had numerous plots to kill him, and he was thrown in a muddy cistern to die. Something about throwing people in pits, I don't know. But in the midst of his suffering, it was Jeremiah who wrote one of the most powerful and encouraging truths in Scripture. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah had a hard life with many times of weakness and doubt, but he suffered well, and God was glorified through his suffering. And Jesus himself was called the man of sorrows. He was falsely accused and beaten. He was cursed and mocked and tortured to death in the worst form of Roman punishment. And yet, when the writer of Hebrews writes about why Jesus suffered, he says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross for the joy. See, Paul is just following in this pattern of suffering. He trusts God's purpose for his suffering, and he finds joy. It's not joy in the suffering itself, but a joy in knowing that even in his suffering, God is using him for the advancement of the gospel. And Paul's struggles weren't just unbelievers. It just wasn't the world out there. Look at verse 15. This is like rubbing salt in the wound. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. So there are some who are being encouraged, as Paul said earlier, who are strengthened and emboldened by Paul's suffering. They see the joy and confidence he has in the midst of such trials, and they are empowered. They are moved to offer their lives more fully for the gospel. But then there are some that preach out of spite. Paul says in verse 17, they're preaching out of rivalry, envy. And I don't think that these guys are false teachers Right? Paul did not have a problem calling out false teachers. I think these are people who see the popularity of Paul, his reputation, his following, and they're jealous. 
There are people whose vision for the gospel has been overshadowed by their vision for their ministry or building their own name. I think maybe he's talking about leaders in the church that are more concerned with their Twitter numbers than they are the gospel being proclaimed. Leaders that spend more time trying to fill the seats of their church than they do trying to build bridges with other churches to impact the community. Leaders who spend all their time judging and critiquing what other churches and leaders are doing rather than engaging in discipleship with the people God has given them to shepherd. Envy and rivalry are an epidemic in the church today, just like in the first century. If we cannot find joy in what God is doing in every church, in every denomination, in every country, then we don't truly love the gospel. God may still be glorified through us, but it is in spite of our sin, not because of it. And that's exactly how Paul responds to this envy and rivalry. He's like, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This dude was epic, right? He's like, trample my name all you want, as long as the gospel is proclaimed. I know who my God is, and I I know who I am in him, and his word never returns void, even if it comes out of the mouth of fools. So Paul's suffering wasn't just physical. He was dealing with personal attacks from inside the church. But Paul's understanding of God's sovereignty and goodness took away the fear from both inside and outside the church. Paul knew that nothing could thwart God's plan of redemption. Nothing could derail God's faithfulness. And even if these people are preaching the gospel with bitterness in their hearts... The Spirit of God through the gospel is still the power to transform hearts. He rejoices in the message being proclaimed. So, back to the question we began with Have you suffered? What is your response to suffering? How have you found joy in your suffering? Do we we ask God in the midst of suffering or struggle, how can my suffering advance the kingdom? How can I strengthen the body and proclaim his goodness in the midst of my suffering? Because here's the thing. When we suffer as believers, people watch. People listen. And when we suffer well, when we have joy and hope in the midst of suffering, people are amazed. They want to know what is that source of joy. In John 9, the disciples come across a man who had been blind from birth. And they ask Jesus, hey, is this guy blind because of his sin or because of his parents? Those are the only two plausible reasons that they could think of that this guy's suffering, right? Okay, who did it? And Jesus responds saying, it is neither this man's sin or his parents, but 
that the work, the works of God might be displayed in him. That the works of God might be displayed in him. His suffering was so that God's glory might be put on display. And that's, that's a hard truth to swallow in a comfort-driven world. Do we doubt God when life gets hard? Do we question his sovereignty or his goodness? Because the world's answer to suffering is that God has no control at all. That he's as surprised about the events in our lives as we are. That he is impotent or aloof, powerless to act. Or he just doesn't exist. So people are driven to bitterness and anger. They distance themselves from God and seek joy in the fleeting pleasures of the world. They seek hope in amassing things and piling up wealth or toys or trying to turn into that airbrushed beauty on your social media page, whatever. But these things do nothing for the growing void in the soul. They only increase the darkness and the depression and the hopelessness that exists. The reality is that God is sovereign. He is trustworthy. And we can be confident that he is working his mighty power in us. We may not immediately know how or why. And we may not ever know on this side of heaven. But God's promise is that he is always working for the good of those who love him. And when we say good... He's not talking about fleeting goodness. He's not talking about money and power or the false health and wealth gospel, but the eternal goodness of knowing him. The goodness of seeing lives redeemed from the bondage of sin and death. All things work together for this good. And that should bring us abundant hope and joy. This is why James could say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, we are part of his global, eternal plan of redemption. And through our suffering, we have been invited to proclaim his goodness and mercy in the midst of those struggles. If the faithful Christian life was supposed to be free of suffering, as so many false teachers proclaim as they try and extort your money, then why were almost all of the apostles martyred? Why does almost every book of the Bible talk about great suffering? The reality we must consider as the church is not that if th the reality we must consider as a church is that if throughout the Bible in history, almost every person who had an amazing impact for God or for the kingdom suffered, why would we expect that we will not also suffer in some way? The Christian life is not about becoming free of suffering or living in a perpetual state of comfort. It is following Jesus in laying down our lives. It is, as the writer Henry Nouwen said, a life 
of downward mobility, not upward. That was Jesus' life, downward mobility. It's about seeing God in the midst of our suffering. It's about realizing that knowing him and being known by him is greater than anything we could ask or imagine. That eternity with him is the greatest gift and the most blessed joy we could ever experience. And once we've tasted that, we will want to proclaim his goodness to the world. See, Christ bore the pain and agony of the greatest suffering so that we would never have to suffer to that extent. Because all who trust in him have been set free from the condemnation of sin. The enmity between God and man has been reconciled in Jesus. So what scripture promises to all who trust in the name of Jesus, to all who enter into this gospel partnership that we talked about last week, is that we will suffer. It's a promise. But when we fix our eyes on the sovereignty and goodness of God, we can have joy in the midst of that suffering. We can know that our suffering has a purpose, that we do not suffer alone, and that no matter how difficult our suffering is, we can have confidence that God is with us and our eternity is secure. An eternity where there will be no pain or struggle, no hunger or thirst, no death or disease. Our suffering is part of God's ultimate and eternal plan of redemption in the world. So, in light of all this, the resounding question for me isn't why do I suffer, but why do I suffer so little? Why? Do I love the comfort of this world more than I love the gospel? Do I love the things of this world more than the reality of eternity with God? They're questions we have to ask. These are the questions that Paul's life and his words put before us. And my prayer is not that we suffer more. That's not a good prayer. But that the gospel would advance in our community. And if the advancement of the gospel is only seen on the other side of suffering, then I pray that we would be a people who suffer well. A people who boldly proclaim salvation and life through Jesus Christ, knowing that the world will scoff at this message. Some will scorn, some will persecute, but some will be saved. Some will trust in Jesus and join us in God's eternal rescue plan, in his family. He is the only hope in this life that will not disappoint. So let me close out with Paul's words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, For God, who said, Let, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. 
struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal bodies, in our mortal flesh. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that there is nothing in this life that can separate us from your love. That our eternity is secure in you. God, thank you that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And that you have numbered every day that we have on this earth. God, let the truth of your sovereign goodness and love compel us to boldly proclaim the salvation you have offered. God, give us confidence in your word and in your promises and in urgency to see life brought out of death. And God, if our faithfulness brings about struggle or suffering, make us a people who suffer well with our eyes fixed on you knowing that you will be with us till the end. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org.